Today's episode of Quarantine Creatives is brought to you by Soak Pools. If you're new to the show and you haven't heard me talk about Soak Pools before, listen up. Soak Pools are revolutionary space-saving pools that combine the best of a pool and a hot tub, install in just days, and provide year-round enjoyment. It's summertime. I know we're all thinking about how we can get more use out of our backyards, but the truth is a soak pool you can use year-round, even up here in New England when it gets cold and snowy, because you have the option of heating it and heating it hot. So it can be like a hot tub, it can be like a really big hot tub, or it can just be a nice-sized pool. They're great pools just to go cool off after a long day, just relax, just float, swim, whatever you want to do. They're beautiful. They're awesome. Go check them out. Soak pools are made in New Hampshire, they install throughout New England, and can even ship anywhere in the country to be installed by your local pool company. For more information, visit www.soakpools.com. That's soakpools, S-O-A-K-E-P-O-O-L-S dot com. Soak pools, small pools, big benefits. Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. You tuned in for a good one today. I'm glad you're here. I think you're going to be glad you're here. Talking to Nick Offerman today, the one, the only Nick Offerman. Just a little bit. He's going to be here. We're going to be chatting. It's going to be a good time. If you're new to this show, welcome. If you've been here for a while, thanks for coming back. Let me just tell you quickly sort of who I am and and what the deal is with this show. So I'm a TV producer and director. Uh, I work in the Boston area, and I actually got laid off from my longtime producing gig uh, back in March, uh, right as coronavirus was kind of starting and everything was shutting down. So I have uh, I've been looking for a creative outlet, and I've been looking for a way to sort of make sense of what's happening in the entertainment and media space as coronavirus has just completely changed the face of of my profession. And so if you listen back to some of the other shows, I've been trying to talk to people from sort of all sides of the entertainment and media industry to figure out just where are we? What's coming? What's your comfort level? What are you doing to keep saying all of that? So if you enjoyed today's show, I'd, uh, I'd encourage you to listen back to some of the other ones I've done just to, uh, to hear some other perspectives on where we are as an industry. But today, uh, it's all about Nick Offerman. And I can't begin to tell you how excited I am for this. Uh, Nick and I have actually met a couple of times in the past. Uh, the, the producing gig that I got laid off from, that I was at actually for 15 years, uh, was with This Old House, uh, the PBS show. Uh, I used to work on Ask This Old House. And Nick, it turns out, was a fan of, of both shows. And we had approached him at one point, just sort of heard he was a woodworker and wanted to see if he wanted to try to collaborate on some stuff. And so he first came to our studio in the Boston area, it's probably 2015, maybe 2016, somewhere in there. I mean, it's been four or five years now, Uh, but he was doing a play in Boston and uh, came by and and hung out and, and played a little silly game with our cast. And then we went out to his wood shop and shot a really long tour that uh, if you go on, go on YouTube, it's up on there, uh, Nick Offerman, this old house, you'll, you'll see his wood shop tour. And it's, it's really incredible and really fun. And we actually did that tour as part of the press for his book, Good Clean Fun, 
which has been out a couple of years, but it is a really, really good book. If you're somebody that you're just thinking about getting involved in woodworking, it's the book that will push you over the edge. It, it did that for me, I know. When I read that book, it was like, oh, woodworking doesn't have to be this fancy, fussy thing with, you know, down to the 32nd of an inch or 64th of an inch. It's like anything you want to do with wood is is called woodworking and go do it and go have fun. <laughs> so that book was uh, was a great influence. It was fun to to help Nick with that. Nick's one of those guys that every time I meet him, I assume he's met, you know, 5,000 people <laughs> between the last time that he and I met. And so I always, I always reintroduce myself, you know, just like, hey, Nick, I'm Heath. Good to see you again. And he always gives me a big hug. And he says, you don't have to say that, Heath. I know who you are. That was my Nick Offerman. Wasn't great, but um, which, you know. I'm always kind of surprised and flattered by, but uh, I don't know. I guess I guess he and I connected on some level because when when I started this show, you know, I, I pitched his team and said, "Hey, I'm doing this new thing. Do you think Nick would ever want to be a guest?" And they wrote me back and said, "Yeah, let's let's do it this time." And I was kind of floored. <laughs> I didn't expect it, but uh, yeah, we had a really great talk. It's uh, Nick's a deep guy. He's super smart. He's super funny, and he can talk to you just about anything. I mean, you'll you'll see where this conversation goes. And the truth is, there's like a hundred things I wanted to talk to him about, and we didn't even get time to get that deep into it because the conversation just went in a whole different direction. We started talking about, well, you'll hear it, you'll hear where we go. But uh, yeah, I wanted to I wanted to talk to him about his new podcast that he and his wife Megan Mullally do. It's called In Bed with Nick and Megan. And the show started last year. They were doing it literally in their bedroom. They would have a guest come over and sit in their bed with them, and they would interview them. And now, because of coronavirus, that whole workflow's changed. I want to talk to him about that. Didn't get a chance to. I wanted to talk to him about making it, the show that he does with Amy Poehler, where they uh, it's like a crafting competition show on NBC. And because of coronavirus, they've been making little web videos about how to make things. Nick and Amy across Zoom and putting that up on, on Instagram. Wanted to talk about that. Ran out of time for that. Nick was, of course, in Parks and Recreation for many years on NBC. They did a special one-time episode to help raise money for some food pantries around the country and uh, reunited the cast virtually. It was really fun. Uh, go check that out. He's also in the uh, in the show Devs on Hulu. You can go check that out right now. And uh, he's got the podcast. You can listen to that. You can uh, you can do a lot. You know him. You've seen him. He also tours as a, as a comedian. Have I mentioned that? He tours as a comedian, and he's got a lot of his comedy specials are up streaming for free right now. So uh, go check those out, too. All right. I could literally introduce Nick all day because his resume is so long. He's just done so much. And... I could have talked to him for probably four hours and still had stuff to ask him about. So yeah, here's here's a little conversation with the one and only Nick Offerman. Hey, Nick. Hello, Heath. How you doing? I'm all right. How are you? Well, you know, I'm uh, I'm in a house that's not on fire, so I'm counting my lucky stars. Yeah, I, I've been thinking about that just like this whole time like starting with the coronavirus stuff and now on to 
to you know all the all the protesting and stuff like from my house stuff looks normal and it's really easy to just kind of get sucked into my own life and not realize the bigger picture that's going on out there but it's it's scary times i don't know how are you feeling sure yes it it is surreal um if if one didn't uh pay attention to the news you wouldn't even know um that there was a pandemic or couple miles away you know there's rioting and what have you but uh this uh this was sort of predicted when trump got elected um the the sense was well our um the infirmities in this country are going to now come to the surface yeah the uh, disgusting enormous whitehead is going to form on the epidermis of the united states (laughs) and um and it's you know we will see what what needs purging. So in the long run, I'm hope you know I'm cautiously hopeful that uh, this will bring about some some moral advancement. Um, but you know by and large it's a, it's a fraught time. It's um it's a, it's a crazy time to be do doing what we do. Um, and for me personally, it's, I'm just having a really strange time because there's not going to be any acting jobs in the foreseeable future. Yeah. And so that part of it, I, I'm very grateful for the, the influences, especially the writers that I, uh, that I adhere to. They bring me a lot of solace, um, and allow me to focus on things like cooking with my wife and, you know, doing things at my wood shop, but, uh, not on a, a, a grand scale, just on a domestic scale. Is that has that been sort of how your time's been taken up? Just just reading and thinking and things like that, or what? What have you been doing to sort of keep sane during this time? Uh, reading and th- and thinking. Um, I mean, when, when things when the quarantine began, my wife and I just started doing a lot of jigsaw puzzles yeah. um, and listening to audio books. That's that's one of our favorite things to do uh, at any time. And, um, and I run four miles a day and I find that really, uh, that really helps, uh, sort of keep the, the metabolism of my energy flowing and, uh, whatever anxiety I'm, I'm feeling works out quite a bit, works itself out quite a bit when I run. And we, we immediately shot the, shut the shop down. There's five employees right now. And so we sent them all home and, and so it, at first we just sort of stayed home and hunkered down and said, okay, let's get the lay of the land. And then after a couple few weeks, uh, I began to venture over to the shop. I, you know, I built some set of shelves for my garage, a couple small projects for friends, but mainly, uh, I'm very lucky that I'm not just an actor and a woodworker, but I'm also a, a writer and so uh, not only have I been reading a great deal, but um, I have two new projects with my publisher that I'm working on. So <clears throat> in the long run, I'm very grateful I can earn some income without needing to leave the house. Yeah, it's it's definitely been a strange time. And that's sort of that's part of why I wanted to start this podcast, I think, too, is just, you know, I, I got laid off in March at the beginning of all this and for you know, two months now, three months, it's been just trying for me personally, like thinking about it from like, how do I want to jump back 
into production and you know what what does my next move look like it, but as i started talking to friends in the industry sort of realizing that everybody's in this boat right now that this isn't you know normally like if i had lost my job a year ago it would be like okay that sucks let me call some other production houses and see what's happening in town or you know yeah. take some freelance gigs or whatever you know it takes some time to figure it out but know that there there could be a source of income there could be a source of you know creative outlet and yeah, just in talking to everybody, realizing, oh shit, we're all in this boat. Like nobody is is doing anything right now, and really just kind of wanting to to explore that with other people. I, I wanted to talk some just about some of the projects that you've had going. I know you know there was that Parks and Rec special that was really great, and just I know you talked a lot about that on the Good Place podcast, and people should listen to that and and kind of hear the whole story, but sort of the the cliff notes version how did that all come about and and work i guess well it came about um mike sure the main creator of and writer of, of parks and rec admirably he also is the, the creator of the good place he uh in the case of both of those shows he ended the, the series on his own terms so he's he's this rare bird in in hollywood who um who places the integrity of his writing and his storytelling above his bank account. Usually if you're lucky enough to get a TV show going, then you milk that son of a bitch for for, for all it's worth until it keels over after season 11. And so among the, the many ways I count myself lucky in knowing Mike is the fact that he, he deals with, uh, with such integrity. And, um, and so, I have known ever since this sort of new rash of rebooting shows has sort of has struck uh, that that we would very likely never do anything like that with Parks and Recreation. That said, when when this whole thing sort of went down, when the when the pandemic struck, Mike was talking to some other big shots uh, in town about just, you know, overview and and like what's going to happen. We're going to run out of of uh, of material to broadcast and mike said you know i have i have one idea maybe we could come up with this parks and rec uh reunion it wouldn't it wouldn't really be you know an actual episode of the show as it were it, it would sort of exist outside of the 125 episodes we we did but it might be a nice way to raise some money for for food charities and food banks and um and so, you know, of course, anything Mike ever asks of us, an army of people springs to his service and says, yes, by God. I mean, I've told him he could I could be in Australia and he could call me to help him move across town tomorrow <laughs> and I would be there uh, with an extra pickup truck. He, he's just one of those yeah. guys who uh, will all will all come running when he needs us. So it was, you know. Um, and then there's another guy named Morgan Sackett, who's the main producer of Parks and Rec and The Good Place and uh, another uh, up and coming program called Veep. Um, <laughs> he's just incredible. He's this quiet, uh, intelligent, incredibly competent um, Iowan who, uh, who he's the one who, you know, Mike sort of and the writers, they envision they, they dream up the world and the scenarios and then morgan is in charge of looking at the pocketbook and saying okay i can i can make that happen yeah 
I can I can build you a harvest festival or a <laughs> unity concert or yeah. what, what have you. And uh, so Morgan was the mastermind. He came up with the the way to like each cast member had a a kit like a tub full of equipment dropped off that had been through a sanitizing cleaning. So you, everybody got like a an iPhone on a tripod with a little lighting unit, and it was you know it was really fun and brilliant. Like you so. For for me and um, spoiler alert, Tammy too is in my scenes <laughs> um, because I'm married to the powerful actress who plays Tammy too. Of course, so we, yeah. So we went to my wood shop and you know tried to create something that could cast for one of Ron's cabins, and then you get on the laptop with Morgan and Dean Holland, one of our main directors and our editor. So they're, you know, they're basically zooming in to the scene. They can see what's going down. I would literally line up the shot on the iPhone and then I would spin the laptop around so that they could see the shot. <laughs> it was really fun. It had, it had a real sort of bad news bears, uh, you know, <clears throat> let's let's get the, the the ramshackle gang back together yeah. for, for one one last pageant and uh and it and it came off great the the donations are still open i think through i want to say june 21st but last time i heard we were up over like 4.3 million or something oh, wow. like that, that we had raised so it was incredibly effective it really, you know, was sort of a global wave of uh, good-hearted friendliness. You know, it was, it was like a hug to uh, our audience. I'm very grateful, you know, to be uh, to be part of that of that crew. They, uh, Mike's just that kind of guy that he, it would occur to him to take perhaps his most precious property, Parks and Recreation, and say, okay, I'm gonna make a gift of this to the people. It touched me in ways that I didn't expect. You know, when I first heard about it, I was a little cynical, just like, oh, okay, you know, another revival and it's a one-off and, you know, what's this going to be? And, you know, by the end of it, uh, when you're all singing 5,000 Candles in the Wind, like, I, I was tearing up and just like, oh my God, like, I didn't know how much I... I don't know. I just, I love those characters in that world. And, and just to be back in it for a half hour was, was nice. Like, wh what do you think it is about those characters that just, that resonates so much with people? Well, I, I mean, I, it, it kind of dovetails neatly with the, with what you're talking about. Like the inception of the characters and the storylines that the writers come up with go hand in hand with the idea that you can do a show, you know, like you said, you're, you're a perfectly nice guy who I know through like good hearted PBS programming. Yeah. And, and even, even, you know, Heath hears about this show and is like, Oh great. And you know, <laughs> another, another money grab or, you know, just immediately you jump to, consumerist cynicism of yeah. like, or oh, just, is it going to be good? Or, you know, it ended so nicely. Like, do we really right. need to, reboot this yeah right what's the catch here right and um and then to see it and say and then so for me that's that's the sort of root answer to your question is uh the show continues to remind us i i, I always say of mike I, i'm very grateful to him in a in a life lesson sort of way because he's taught me that we can still be very funny while saying i love you to one another yeah those those two things are not 
don't need to be separated. And and that's what I feel like happens with the show. People tune in because they know it's funny and they and they like the funny characters and stories. But then they it sneaks up on the audience and says, oh, yeah, it's also encouraging us to be nice. It's it's reminding us, especially in this time, to reach out to one another, take care of each other. Also take, you know, uh, allow ourselves to take care of ourselves. Give yourself a break if you're a Leslie Nope type. And, you know, the, beyond that, uh, I, I got asked that out a lot over the years. Why do you think people re- like why do you think Ron Swanson resonates with people so strongly? And I and I came up with the line. Um, there's there's no point in asking the clown from behind the makeup why the children are crying. Uh but as near as I can discern, I think there's a set of values in parks and recreation that we all miss. Yeah, we all sort of dumbly have have been led along by the industrial revolution. You know, a, a life of love, luxury, and laziness, without paying attention to what it's doing to our planet and, and to all facets of nature, um, the flora and the fauna, and ourselves. And now, you know, now there's that we're we've been enjoying this this sort of resplendent meal for decades and the waiter has just arrived with the bill yeah in in the form of climate change and and our our uh, absolute bed shitting in response to this pandemic you know we allowed the deeply shameful administration to occupy the white house that's that's in there now i mean we did that we brought that about and and now that's the we're paying the price <laughs> i mean we've been warned for at least 20 years you know experts in the government have been saying man if a pandemic hits yeah we 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 either need to get ready etc and of course our president famously threw away the the instructions um, and fired the team and the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, literally, we, we put a guy in charge who threw away the the fire extinguisher uh, as, as fire season was upon us. Yeah. And so so the thing I love about the show is that uh, I think it harkens. It has a set of values that we all somehow remember in a generational way and say, oh, I need this. I need I need Ron Swanson telling me what what to eat what or not you know what is i need the six rules to live by yeah because i think we're all drowning in choice we're all drowning in uh in information and when you have uh, a surplus of information too many things to look at too many bright colors uh that creates a, a deficit of attention you then are unable to focus on any one thing yeah no i think that's that's a great point I don't know. I, I'm thinking too. Just a conversation I had about the show maybe a year or two ago. Uh, we were shooting in a house in Birmingham, Alabama. Lovely young couple, and in their kitchen they had a poster of. You remember that that bit Aziz did uh, as Tom, where uh, you know I call apps Zaz, or what, there was a whole thing of you know chicky chicky yeah. bang bang, you know whatever, all his funny words for for different foods, and they had that kind of in poster form. I was like, oh, you're a Parks and Rec fan. That's cool. And she said, yeah, we're actually, we're rewatching it right now. And this was 2017, 2018. And I hadn't seen it since probably prior to the election. It was, you know, 2014, 2015, somewhere in there was, was the last time I had seen it. And I said, does that, does that show hold up though? Like, I just, I remember watching it during this time 
when it felt like, you know, female leaders were on the ascent and, you know, it was easy to see some of, of Leslie in Hillary Clinton and, and to sort of see that better world that, that Leslie was leading people towards. And then just to feel like we took a giant step backwards when Trump got elected. And I was like, is it, does the show hold up now in that context? She said, no, it's, it's actually better than ever. Like it's given me a lot of hope in these times. And yeah, it's, it was nice to hear that, you know. I, I haven't gone back and watched it yet, but I maybe I will at some point. It is it is good to hear the the one funny thing um, about the reunion show <laughs> was uh, over over the next few days. I I have long since given up um, like looking at uh, seeking out reviews, as it were. Yeah, I mean for kind of since the beginning of Parks and Rec, which was 09, there's been just such a preponderance of information. And, and uh, Mike, I've heard Mike speak more eloquently about it, but basically since the advent of social media, certainly, but even, <clears throat> even before then, it's kind of since the advent of the chat room or the ability to leave comments on, yeah. on any website and, and the advent of websites that need to fill their content for, for a lot of my life, um, if you had a TV show, they would just review the first episode of the season or and the finale. Yeah. But but it's a relatively new modern development where where people need to fill content, and so you, they're getting there's they began reviewing every episode of every show. And, and so you're talking it, just about traditional media at this, you know, like like an LA yeah. Times or Hollywood Reporter or something. Not even just like you know jimmy's blog or something <laughs> like right exactly yeah. i mean i mean i could i could rattle off i don't know when once i have something coming out and they they send me a list they say here's the outlets we're pitching to to see if they'll interview you and it'll or you know are these okay with you and it'll be like 50 outlets and they're all you know name brand you know variety and yeah. buzzfeed and uh, and whatever so that's so that's just the name brand stuff then beyond that the amount of like blogs and websites is just mind-boggling yeah you kind of like get things by osmosis or if there's if there's something anomalous like something really bad or really good someone will then tell you about it so that's i sort of uh i sort of use social media by osmosis i i glance at it i I, tr I mean, I, I try to contribute to it because it's part of my business, like having a, an amount, uh, a good amount of following uh, translates into um, clout. Like I, yeah. I, it's I can sales, get sales. It's comedy club sales, right? Yeah. Which I'm not crazy about because it, it also translates into having to be my own salesman. Yeah. And I, I don't like that part of it at all. And, and that's what keeps me from fully engaging but I just so I've developed a technique where I'll sort of breeze through, uh, usually once or twice a day, and that allows me to not feel obligated to consume everything coming my way because that would be kind of a full time job. Yeah. And so after we after the uh, reunion special aired, breezing through social media, I saw it's, it's three instances where people <laughs> couldn't resist. They felt the need to say, and one was a one was a very prominent television critic said, "Okay, uh, 
it's not the funniest episode ever was like the opening of his review of the show. Yeah. And I, and there was a few other of those just from like random people on social media where they're like, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't great. And I just uh, shook my head and laughed and said, what the <laughs> fuck do you think it was? Like, did, did you think we, it yeah. was an attempt? Are you so sick that you, that you thought it was merely uh, trying to come out of retirement? Like it was right. like a Tiger Woods. Yeah. It was shot return. on iPhones. Like. As a yeah, fundraiser. It was like, yeah. It was like, hey guys, clear like clearly here's what the thing is. And in the context, it was astonishing. Like it should win an Oscar for what it was. Yeah. It always makes me laugh. Like it I'm always being reminded that no matter how magnanimous your gesture or you know, the the no matter how good your intentions, uh, you still are barreling down the road to hell, apparently. Yeah. I am I want to ask you, too, just sort of about Ron Swanson. And there was a parallel that I was thinking about um, relative to, to Donald Trump and all, and just sort of really trying to think about, like, how did we get in this mess? And realizing to me that the, the origin of a lot of this is The Apprentice. And sort of, like, I remember when that show was on, I had, you know, family members and stuff that were just like, you got to watch this. It's so cool. Like, he's just this tough businessman, and he fires everybody. And and like, I, I never watched the show, but even just in the previews and stuff, I'm like, well, it's all stagecraft. Like it's, it's a boardroom set and they're lighting him a certain way and they're, they're giving him this dialogue, you know, but it's, it's all a construct. And yeah, there, there are pieces of it that have some truth, but it's not a reality show at all. It's, you know, it's, it's this character that Mark Burnett dreamed up, not that, you know, and, and the Donald Trump in a lot of ways, he was projecting that, I guess, his whole adult life, right? That he's he's the casino mogul and he's the airline mogul and whatever, but all those businesses kept failing. And somehow just putting him on prime time and, and lighting him a certain way and giving him the right lines, people love that character. And I think in a lot of ways, they think that's who's in the White House now. And like, I just want like, you know, you played such a distinct character with Ron Swanson and I remember, you know, I saw your comedy show when you were coming through Boston in October and you have a song that you close with. That's like, I'm not Ron Swanson. And, and a lot of the, the thesis of the show is sort of, you know, here's my stance on, on women's rights and LGBT rights. And, you know, like I'm not that guy uh, is sort of the subtext of all that. Like just I, I don't know. You could have easily gone the other way, I guess, and just leaned into that and been like, yeah, I'm I'm the hyper masculine guy that just, you know. I go out in the yard and grab a squirrel and eat it raw every morning or, you know, whatever. Like, I don't know. Do, do you see that parallel, I guess, of sort of how how the public can form an image of a character in their head? Yeah, for sure. I um, uh, And the stories, the sort of examples I'm aware of, um, like, I, I, I don't know. I mean, speaking of our, our president, um, I wouldn't be at all surprised to learn that he uh, that he was very mentally ill. Of course, like he he doesn't he, you know he, he's he's an, an incredible anomalous beast who obviously has these talents that uh, I'm, I'm guessing he's not even fully aware of. Yeah, 
um, he's sort of an, an unstoppable, voracious baby who who's somehow um, keeps keeps being empowered. And so in, in the case of somebody like him, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of like, uh, for some reason, the, the amazing Scorsese film King of Comedy is springing to mind. And um, it's, in my opinion, kind of easily Robert De Niro's best work. Um, he plays this incredible character named Rupert Pupkin, who is an aspiring stand-up. And he's he's kind of stalking uh, Jerry Lewis. Hmm. I forget. I don't think J- I've Jerry... seen it actually. Oh man, it's it's so amazing. It's really really funny and deeply chilling. Yeah. Um, Jerry Lewis is also uh, amazing in it. I, I, I'm blanking on the character he plays, but he plays sort of a. I mean, if you saw the recent film Joker, it basically is a. Uh, a deep ripoff of uh, gotcha. King of Comedy. Okay, it's 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 this. I, I I wasn't interested in seeing Joker, but from what I read about it, it's um, it's the same paradigm. Uh, desperate, lonely incel, sort of stalking the Johnny Carson character, which coincidentally is played by De Niro in Joker. Yeah. Anyway, um, the the what I'm driving at is in the case of those two characters in this film. Um, who uh, are desperate to achieve a certain image and, and they see success as being perceived as a certain character or in a certain way. Or, or in other words, maybe to, to put it more simply, it's putting fame uh, above integrity. It's putting the cover uh, at a much higher importance than the book, mm. as, as it were. Yeah. And and so whether he's mentally ill or not, I'm pretty certain that uh, our current president is going to be the most miserable person living. What he wants so desperately, he can never have. And the harder he tries to to gain the approval of decent people, people of taste and class and morality, the harder he tries to to gain that approval the more he's despised and in in a lesser way, I feel like if you come to be known as like a television character, say, or as for having a certain voice, you're right. One choice is to lean into that and say, Ooh, I can ride this gravy train, you know, for a really long time. Um, But I, I pretty quickly just recognized in my gut that that would be really disappointing that it would that it would bring um that it would not bring me fulfillment and and it would become you know if if i were my, my own version of of being perceived as the the boss of the apprentice as it were would just become an albatross i would i would hate that character yeah and i you know i think it's played out i think from the time the apprentice happened through till now it's clear to anybody with eyes to see that it that people are making money off of that particular brand of puppet but nobody's getting happy <laughs> it's not it's not bringing uh, 
anybody anything good. It's just it, like much like American consumerism. It's making a few people a lot of money, and that's about all you can say for it. Yeah, I want to just think too about sort of you were talking about sort of a reset that may come at the end of all this. And it feels like just seeing so many people out on the streets marching against racial inequality, against police brutality, seeing sort of the reaction to, uh, you know, the, the lack of cars on the road and the lack of pollution that my hope anyways, is that there may be a wake up call and a chance to sort of reset some of the assumptions that we've made over the last however many years of, of what it means to, to live in this country and, you know, what, I guess what the good life looks like, what, what the American dream looks like. How do you feel about that? Do you, do you feel like we may get there that that this may be a chance to, to reset some of that stuff and, and start fresh? Well, I mean, unfortunately uh, it's not that easy as, as hitting a reset button. So it's, it's not something that is going to happen, I think quickly, but I do think that um, we are, experiencing a reawakening of i mean it it really couldn't be more simple it's just our relationship to the planet our relationship to the soil yeah and i and i'm as as guilty of this as anybody like i i grew up i grew up in, in this wonderful family both my mom and dad come from farms near each other in this central illinois little town and I, you know, my mom's family are still farming. So, and everybody in the family are like, it's almost a joke. It's like a Norman Rockwell family to, to, to a man or woman. Um, it's school teacher, nurse, librarian, paramedic, wow. uh, craft brewer, and then a bunch of farmers. Yeah. But like, the, the, and then, and then one jackass went off to become a, uh, an actor but so I, I mean i grew up in this family with really great values really great work ethic and that has served me so well and that's what's even though now i live in los angeles and i've always existed um i've lived only in chicago and new york and la because i have to have, i've had to be where the audience is because sure. a lot of my work has been in, in the live theater even so I've, so the older I get, the more I, I feel a kinship with my family and the uh, the simple appreciation of things like family and friendships and neighbors and uh, gardening and cooking and handcrafting. And um, it's living a, a self-sustained life um, in a frugal way. And experiencing the pleasures that that can bring, developing what would become my career over the years of adulthood, uh, I never cognizantly said, "Oh, I love woodworking. I'm going to become uh, a woodworker, and I'm, you know, I want to become known for that." That uh, you you could have knocked me over with a feather if you had told me that I would one day co-host. Uh, a crafting TV show yeah. that said, even though I sort of backed into it, I, I'm so grateful because the older I get, the more I become aware that I uh, very rarely need to buy anything. And that's the, that's the thing where I say I'm as guilty as anybody, like through my teens and twenties, for sure. I'd say I started waking up maybe in my early thirties, 20 years ago. And, uh, but through my teens and twenties, I, I was as good of a, an American consumer as anybody. Like I, 
you know, I, I was susceptible to advertising and I would much rather eat, you know, the, the, the hot and uh, laboratory tested tastiness of fast food rather than some, you know, home cooked uh, beef stew that just sounds bland because yeah. of the way commercials have made it sound bland. But then you actually sit down at a farmer's table or just just a proper homemaker's table for a meal of beef stew and you are reminded oh my god i'm back in the i'm back in the nest i'm back in the in in the cradle of of life you know these people are creating life around them and that takes time and that has a value that is so much more rewarding than any TV show, <laughs> than than any video game, than any of all the of all this stuff. Um, so it, it it's uh it's had a tough um, effect on my my choices as well. Like the more I feel this way, the less amount of scripts come across my table that I that I feel like I want to be involved in. So, but to to get back on track, I feel like our society, our world is because of of climate change and and sort of generational thought revolution you know uh generation z let's see we're x then the millennials then gen z that both millennials and gen z you know are unencumbered with a lot of our our baggage the way generations work and so they simply say what's the matter with you people of course people of all races are are equal and of course uh all genders are, you know, equally legitimate and and deserve equal rights. And of course we need to pay attention to the needs of our planet. Like we're, we're, we're destroying it, our, our, uh, our safe haven hand over fist. So I think, you know, I think we're waking up to that notion that if everybody begins to uh, consume less and pay more attention to, um, or carbon footprint in a, in a, in a nutshell, it will affect the way we live and, and we will come to understand that it can be just as enjoyable as it, actually it can be more enjoyable than the most like resplendent consumerist lifestyle. But more importantly than what, how we feel personally is coming to understand that I think will guide our voting because that, uh, the industrial revolution from then till now and Wendell Berry writes so beautifully about this. Like we've been sold this bill of goods that, that we don't deserve uh, to do. We deserve to not have to uh, engage in hard work. Once, once, you know, uh, factories were able to make vacuum cleaners and other items of luxury. Well, then You've got these hordes of, of housewives who are hardworking and frugal. And these companies say, well, how are we going to sell these vacuum cleaners to these smart housewives? And advertising is born where they say, are you, is your back hurting? Are your knees sore? You deserve to sit down and put your feet up. Get our luxury time-saving gadgets, you know, and and eventually – we began to buy those things and say, oh, great. And and so just like run that out to its to its natural extension. So say you buy every time saving labor saving device 
so you have so you have a robot house and everything is done for you okay so you wake up in the morning you you eat the the breakfast that appears because the robots made it now what now you have the day in front of you but you don't have to do anything because the Roomba is cleaning your house that, you know, everything's being taken care of. And so then, then uh, you say, well, gosh, what should I do? Well, you turn on your channels and they say, well, you should go to the mall and buy more of our stuff, or you should play our video games or, you know, tune into our channels. And if, if you think about it, None of that stuff has any reward. There's nothing productive about it. And so for me, that's just what I try to pay more and more attention to is uh, it's, it's easy. I, I'm, I'm a very good human being. Like I respond well to shiny objects. So if, if somebody says, hey, look at these handsome new work boots with a redesigned steel toe, you know, I'll strain something, snapping my head over to look at those. <laughs> but but if you st- if I step back and think about it, I, I think, hang on a second. I'm standing here in a pair of perfectly good work boots. I like there's no need to give into this desire that I, that's been trained into me. Yeah. So, so that's my hope is that we can train ourselves back out of this consumerism because we understand that our relationship with our food and understanding where it comes from and how we treat the soil and the elements, the air and the water, how that it's all part of the cycle. And, and we're doing a very bad job the last 70 or 80 years. Yeah. It's so rewarding too. Just like, you know, I, I discovered last year, we joined a CSA, a really good CSA near us. And like coming into the fall, you know, August, September, the, the harvest was just insanely good. And you'd come home every week with just so much produce that you'd have to figure out, like, what do I do with this? And for, I don't know, six weeks in the in the late summer, early fall, my Saturday and Sunday was spent, you know, either processing stuff for the next week, you know, let me make some meals that, that we can eat throughout the week, or discovering canning, which I had never done before. But, you know, making my own tomato sauces and pickles and hot pepper jelly and it it's actually been really great because during this quarantine now, I still have some of that in the basement. And you go down there in you know March, April when it's here in Boston, it's cold and snowy, and you know you don't want to go outside. And you just have this amazing fresh you know tomato sauce that tastes like last August or September. And yeah, it's there's a there's a satisfaction in that. And I feel like for me, I always felt the need to put a label on something that like you know if I'm going to be a woodworker. I have to do the kinds of stuff like like you and your team are doing with you know beautiful you know live edge slabs and stuff and it's like no I can I can start simple with some basic pine and pocket screws and make something functional for my house and for my family and it's really satisfying just to start there and and you know work your way up to something but for me it was like you know if I, if I'm going to do this I want to have the tools I want to you know am I going to label myself that way and it took a long time to kind of get over that and say just do it, you know, just, just try, just get in there and have fun with it, you know? Oh, absolutely. It's, I mean, the, my, um, my woodworking book, good, clean fun. That's a big part of my introduction It is encouraging people to say, look, you know, there's, there's nothing fancy about it. If you want to build a doghouse or fix a step on your back porch, like 
it's all working with wood. There's an, you know, um, I've been making stuff out of wood with tools for uh, over 30 years. And, uh, and I don't expect to end up with any of my pieces in a museum, but I also don't, um, don't aspire to that. I make things because they, uh, because they serve people. They, they do, they do good in the world. It's, it's taking wood that would otherwise be destroyed one way or another and giving it another life. Yeah. And, uh, and sometimes, uh, you get lucky and it turns out to be a a really pretty dining table. But as you said, sometimes it's a bread box. Sometimes it's beauty is in its functionality. Yeah. Um, a simple bookshelf or something. Absolutely. And, and, and that's, that's the thing is, um, the mentality behind that and, and the other things you were talking about, uh, getting either growing your own vegetables or, or signing up with a CSA is one of the, one of the smartest things we can do because it drives back towards what I'm talking about. Uh, it, it, it brings the, uh, cycles of agriculture into your home. I think it's so healthy to only have the harvest, for example, for six to eight weeks. We weren't meant to be able to have blueberries every morning for right. breakfast. Yeah. And so understanding when you can have what items, you know, eating seasonally is an important part of living in harmony with with the planet. But it also it makes you aware of who's growing that stuff. What where is the farm that's supplying you, you with this box of produce and how are they doing and and what is our government doing to take care of them because the people who grow our food provide literally our first line of security like that's something we're learning i think in this in this pandemic is when suddenly the world has to stay home when suddenly we can't you know, we can't be shipping potatoes across oceans. Suddenly we say, oh, crap, who has a cellar full of food or not? Mostly not. Uh, mostly we're not prepared to feed our population. And even the way we do feed our population with the monocultures, the, the danger of like growing vast fields of only one species of corn or soybean or the dangers of, of overproducing these industrially produced beef cattle or, or pigs or chickens has, has become obvious. You know, yeah. a virus gets into the, the meatpacking plant. I mean, just, you know, just the term meatpacking plant. Yeah. Do you want the food you feed your children to come through a place called a meatpacking plant right. where in the middle of a pandemic, the working conditions are so filthy and uh, uncomfortable that the government told them to keep going to keep working in the meatpacking plant and they said well we can't socially distance and we can't wear masks because we literally would die if we had to wear a mask and work in these conditions yeah so and so instead everybody gets the disease it's a an incredibly dangerous um national security issue yeah and and realizing that when you when you separate out those component parts, you miss the bigger picture that like, you know, a family farm 100 years ago, you're raising cattle or pork or whatever, and you're taking that manure and feeding the crops. And that you know, just that cycle of it versus like you say, like 
if you're growing this monoculture of corn, you've got to fertilize it somehow. So you bring in synthetic nitrogen. And if you've got these animal farms, you know, you got to do something with all the shit. So it just ends up in a, you know, in a cesspool, like realizing that those, if you combine those two elements, like we did for, you know, thousands of years, it just kind of makes sense. Well, it does. I mean, that's how our species survived for millennia is, is by using common sense and looking at our locality and saying, okay, how can we, how can we uh, glean our food from this landscape, from these animals, from these plants in a way that will allow generation upon generation to keep eating? And, and instead, we're, we're using the, the rapacious technique of the forestry industry where we just cut, them, cut all the trees down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like we could go on like this for a long time, but I feel, I feel like we should wrap it up and just, you know, I don't know. Do you, have, do you have words of hope for all of us at the end of this? Do we, do we get out on the other side with, with everything that's happening right now? I mean, I think so. I, I see no cause for uh, pessimism just because of, because that's my nature. Things are bleak right now. I mean, we're having this conversation, I think eight or nine days into the protests surrounding the murder of uh, George Floyd in Minneapolis. And, you know, the, the story is like 90% protests, 10% rioting and looting. Yeah. And, and that's, a, that's a guess on my part, but I mean, uh, again, it's fascinating. The, the story is that th- this percentage of our population, which I'll, I'll represent by I'll call them Black Lives Matter are, are simply making their voices heard until uh, until our government finally listens to them, and our and our dipshit government continues to uh, to fail to do so. I mean, the really the issue here is four police officers uh, were involved in the murder of this guy. One of them knelt on his neck for nine minutes or whatever and killed him. Three of them were complicit. Three of them helped him and stood there and watched him any other any other setting they're all in in jail like they're all unquestionably charged and the the problem here is that one of them has been arrested the other three have not and that's all it would take like literally there are massive protests all over the world against this issue against the against the the way our government is shitting the bed in their protection of the police and in their their discrimination against these black citizens and all it would take is literally arresting three police officers who clearly deserve to be arrested yeah so that's the context in which we're having this conversation meanwhile you know we're in like the third month of of the covid-19 pandemic so i i mean Ultimately, you know, we are pretty tough cockroaches, we human beings. So there's there's going to be pain and suffering before there's going to be more pain and suffering before we're, we're out of these particular woods. But I am hoping that this sort of forced time out, this, this sit down that we're all being made to engage in will do some good by, by making us uh, refocus our attentions on how joyful it can be to spend time with our kids, with our hands, making things, 
with the simple things, paying attention to, to our food and where it comes from and how that really is at the heart of all world issues. I mean, where what we do with our natural resources, most of which means food. We need food much more than we need power. Yeah. And, and by power, I mean oil and coal and electricity. Um, we don't need those things to survive. We survived a long time without those things. They just became a really uh, great way for a few people to make a shitload of money. And so hopefully this, this hardship that uh, the, the world is going through will allow us to see uh, where we should refocus our priorities when we get to the ballot box. Because for me, it's all about the farmers. It's until the government is taking care of our small farmers, not these big industrial giants, uh, Monsanto and Cargill and so forth. I mean, they're, they're you know is guilty they're, they're some of the biggest monopolizing uh evil players happening in the world today uh we need our government to protect our small farmers who who are stewards of the land we need to keep our land healthy and then maybe we can be healthy yeah november feels like a long way away right now though it really does but you can't give up those nope Let's stay in touch. Uh, look around you for for who needs something, and uh, and we'll do our best to come out the other end uh, still on our feet. All right, there we go. Nick Offerman, the one, the only. It's funny that that could have been an interview with Michael Pollan, right? Like the last third of that was nothing to do with entertainment but i was engaged with it he was engaged with it we just kept going it was great i loved it go check out devs streaming now on hulu check out the parks and recreation special if you haven't seen it yet go listen to in bed with nick and megan wherever you listen to your podcasts it's phenomenal it's so much fun super intimate and uh and funny i love it all right before we go i want to ask you one favor if you're new to this show, if this is the first episode you've ever listened to, go back and listen to some of the others. I think you'll enjoy them. If you like today's conversation, the names for the most part are not as recognizable as Nick Offerman, but uh, it's people from across the entertainment and media space that all have really interesting insights into where we're headed as as a business and uh, you know as a planet. So go listen to some of the other shows if you're new. If you've heard some of those other shows, can I ask you one favor? Can you tell one other person who you think might enjoy this show? Shoot them a quick text. Shoot them a quick email. Tell them, hey, I think you'd like this podcast. Because, you know, I want people to hear it. And uh, what's better than word of mouth? Isn't that how you find stuff that you like? A friend says, hey, I think you'd like this show. I think you'd like this movie. Tell them about the podcast. I'm at Heath Rosella on Twitter and Instagram. Shoot me a line. Let me know what you like, don't like, who you want to see next. Subscribe rate review new show coming on thursday it's gonna be a good one i'll talk to you then stay safe <laughs>